Well, good morning, those of you here in the house, those in the venue, those of you online. This morning, we continue our study in the book of Genesis. I hope you're getting a sense of how foundational an understanding of Genesis and of the uh, creation account is to your faith and your confidence in the Word of God. You know, too many Christians aren't sure what they believe about evolution versus creation or uh, new world and, and old earth. Really, what they aren't sure about is that they believe the veracity of God's Word. Satan has really done a number through the advancement of secular humanism to confuse believers and cast doubt on the Word of God. And he uses today the same old lie he used that we'll get to next week in Genesis 3, the same old lie that he used with Eve, did God really say? And the primary reason for the attack on the Word of God and denial of Genesis specifically is that when you acknowledge that there's a creator, you become accountable to him. He made you, he owns you, he certainly, as the, as the creator, has the right to tell you what to do and how to live your life. And, and people don't want that. They don't want someone telling them how to live their life. You know, the wonderful thing, for, wonderful thing for us as believers is we have figured out God's infinite love for us. We figured out that his plan for our lives is perfect. And, and when we obey God, it brings purpose and fulfillment we would never find apart from his plan. You know, the pleasures of sin, Scripture says, last only for a season. The mercies of God are new every morning. And it's in his plan for us that we find the purpose and fulfillment. Now, we need, obviously, as believers, we need to know God's word. It's, it's the only uh, source of truth. It's not unproven. It's not unfounded theory. You and I need to be firmly grounded in the truth. All the answers we need, all the directs we need are found in this book, in, in God's word. As you're turning to chapter two this morning, let's uh, just quickly review. Last week, we looked at days four through six of creation. Day four, the sun, moon, and stars. Uh, day five, uh, the uh, aquatic life and the birds. And then day six, the land creatures, including man. And remember that we saw that all the living things God made on day five and six were made according to their kinds. Within their DNA, of course, there's variation within a kind or within a species, but one kind will not evolve to another kind. One of the illustrations I used last week in the venue was uh, there are 195 known breeds of dogs, of canines, 195 known breeds. But a canine will never become a feline. One uh, kind does not evolve into another kind, according to God's design. One of the word from last week before we move on to chapter two, you know, there are so many fascinating elements in creation. I could hang out in chapter one for a long time. And one of my, one of my favorite elements is day four where it says God made the greater light and the lesser light and the stars and the stars, almost as an afterthought. We have the greater light, we have the lesser light. Oh, and he also made the stars. In our universe, it's estimated there are one septillion stars. That's one intended to the 24th power, one with 24 zeros behind it. And in the 147th Psalm, the psalmist tells us that God only, not, not only created these stars, God gave each star its name. And he shares that as a word of encouragement. The 147th Psalm is entitled, A Psalm for the Brokenhearted. And in the 147th Psalm, the psalmist is calling on the congregation to praise God for his benefits, to recognize his greatness in sustaining creation, and to recognize his grace in healing those who are afflicted. Well, what does the creation of one septillion stars have to do with encouraging the brokenhearted? I, I like playing with numbers. Now, I hope you heard what I said. I like playing with 
numbers. And so I got thinking this week about that one septillion stars. I thought, okay, there are about 7.8 billion people on planet Earth right now. And so I took 7.8 billion and I divided that into one septillion. And what I discovered is, is you divided the number of stars we know about by the number of people on Earth, each and every individual person could have 128 trillion stars. All for you. 128 trillion stars that God made for you. Well, what if God assigned 128 trillion stars to each of us? Think about the fact that God knows your 128 trillion stars by name. Knowing that, don't you think he knows everything about you and every intricate detail of your life? You know, when, we're, when you're struggling, when you're discouraged, when you're afflicted, maybe, maybe your prayer to God should be influenced by that thought. God, I, I, I know you know where I am and you know what I'm going through. I know you know my name and you know all about me. You know exactly where I am right now. God, I take comfort in the fact that as the creator of one septillion stars, as creator of the 128 million star, trillion stars that could be mine, God, you know my name and you know my need. Creation speaks to the omniscience and the omnipotence and the sovereignty and love of our God. Maybe we should spend some time there, especially when we're struggling. Well, chapter 2, look at verses 1 through 3. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Those verses are actually wrapping up through the conclusion of chapter one. It says that God stopped his work and he rested. Well, why did God need to rest? God doesn't get tired. He wasn't physically resting. The work wasn't overwhelming. Remember, the work for God in creation was simply that he spoke all of creation into existence. He rested simply means he came to an end of his work of creation. He came to an end. He was satisfied with what he had created. It it was finished. He rested. It's like a defense attorney saying that he rests his case. Everything that needed to be spoken, needed to be done, has been spoken, has been done. It's complete. So God rested on the seventh day, and it says he blessed the seventh day and made it holy. What, What does that mean? Well, God elevated the seventh day and made it special and unique. It was special and unique because creation was complete. The work was perfect, and God was satisfied with the work that had been done. And so the the purpose for the seventh day or for the Sabbath was to serve as a memorial, a reminder of the perfect creation and the glory of God's perfect creation. Now, what about the rest part for us? You know, the physical rest was prescribed in the Ten Commandments when they were given. And the purpose of the Sabbath rest, it was part of the moral law. It was a sign and a, and, and a symbol to God's people that they had forfeited paradise. That God had created this perfect world and perfect order, but, but they had forfeited that due to sin. And so the purpose of the rest was to lead the people to rest spiritually and to lead the people to, to reflect and to lead the people to repentance. Now, I don't want to make a big deal out of this. I wish I had known this when I was a child. Um, my mom's understanding of Sabbath and rest was that we did nothing on Sunday. Our home, um, we had this huge uh, picture window in our living area. Our home uh, faced a field across the street where all the kids in the neighborhood played all weekend. Not me on Sunday. 
You know, even when I got older, I guess my mom thought it was a little foolish. Maybe I was. She would say, well, you need to go lay down. You don't have to take a nap, but you need to go lay down and be still. Do you know that of the Ten Commandments, this one about the rest on the Sabbath, it's the only one not repeated in the New Testament? It's not in there. Why? Well, because when Jesus came, things changed. He, changed, he, he ended all the legalities of, of Judaism and the rituals and the feasts and the ceremonies. In fact, you know, Jesus said, I wish I had known this verse to say this to my mom. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. It all changed. Yes, rest and reflection are, are good. What do we see in the New Testament? We see that we're to be a holy people. We see that we are to assemble we see that we're to worship in spirit and in truth. Christians don't observe the Sabbath anyway, do we? Sabbath is the last day of week. Saturday, we reflect on the first day of the week. It's a day we have set aside to honor the Lord and to remember what Christ has done for us because he was raised, the resurrection occurred on the first, first day of the week. Saturday, the seventh day, was a memorial to creation. Sunday, the, the first day, is a witness that God is Redeemer. And that's what we celebrate, and that's why we gather on Sunday, on the Lord's Day, on the first day of the week. Well, before we jump into verse 4, let me mention that, that there are those, and you may encounter some folks like this, who feel that Scripture has some inaccuracies in it. And they would point out to you that Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 are two different accounts of creation, and they contradict each other. Well, here's the reality. Genesis 1 is an overview of the creation of the universe and of all the living things of all of life. It's a chronological overview or order. We're told what happened on each day ending in day 6. Genesis 2 is an elaboration on a theme. It's a more in-depth explanation uh, or focus on the creation of man and woman. You see in Genesis 2 the details of how God made Adam. You see how he revealed Adam's need for a mate. You see how he made Eve. He instituted marriage. And you see the instructions that they were given. That's what we find in Genesis 2. So let's jump in in verse 4. It says, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now, the Hebrew word translated here, generations, carries the meaning of, of an account. In other words, this is the account of the heavens and earth when they were created and, and in the day that God made uh, the heavens and the earth. Now, before we get into the specifics of the creation of Adam, look at verses 5 and 6. I don't know if you happen to read ahead this week. If you did, this may have tripped you up. Uh, it's very, it can be very confusing. Uh, this is one of the areas where people who say chapter 2 contradicts chapter 1, this is one of the areas they will likely point to. Look what it says in 5 and 6. When no bush of the field was yet in the land... And no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land. There was no man to work the ground. A mist was coming up from the land and was watering the whole face of the earth. And then verse 7 says, that is when God formed man. Now, when you read that at first glance, it seems to read that God had not yet created the plant life when he made Adam. But we know back in chapter 1 that the vegetation was created on day 3, and man was created on day six. Now, I don't want to get bogged down here, but I do think this needs explanation. I'll admit these verses have confused me before. I'm not a, I'm not a Hebrew scholar. I know one, actually more than one. Uh, I know how to dig. I know how to read. And I do recognize the differences in some Hebrew words. When my scholar's not available, I have some tools that I can use. But the account here in verses five and six 
is not going back to day three. It's really explaining something completely different. It's actually describing the earth after the first five days, but before the fall. How's that evident? Well, when you examine the Hebrew wording here in verse five, the word for bush is not the same word used in Genesis 1. Evidently, this is a a different kind of plant that we're introduced to in Genesis 1. You'll also notice here in 5 and 6, look at it. We're told the reason the bush of the field and the small plant had not sprung up yet was that God had not caused rain and there was no man to till the ground. Verse 6 tells us there was no rain because at this time, at the time of creation, water was coming up out of the ground to water the earth. Now, Let me jump ahead a little bit. I don't want to lose you here. Let me jump a little bit ahead in Genesis history to bring this all together. Next week, we're going to look at the fall, but let's go ahead, look over in chapter 3. should be right there across the page or on the next page. Let's look at verses 17 through 19 of chapter 3. This is after Adam and Eve have eaten from the tree. God has confronted them. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now look back to verses 5 and 6 of chapter 2. Understand that it was after the fall, you saw the curse here we read in chapter 3, after the fall the ground would produce thorns and thistles. Those weren't a part of a perfect creation. Those weren't in the garden. Recognize also that after the fall, Adam was going to have to till or work the ground and plant crops if he was going to eat the plants of the field. So understanding that, then we see here the bush of the field and the small plants of the field must be referring to plant life other than what God created on day three. It was plant life that came after the fall, thorns and thistles and crops that Adam had to plant and till and work the ground. And those underground springs were how the earth was watered. You understand that rain did not occur until after the fall. In fact, it occurred long after the fall. We won't get to the rain until we get to the flood account in Genesis 6, 7, and 8. Rain was actually a judgment. It's what God used to destroy the earth. So all that happened after the fall. Now, if I've completely lost you, and I've kind of completely lost myself going through all this, but if I've completely lost you, let me just word summarize verse 5 and 6 this way. After all that God had created in the perfect world that he made, and before the earth was corrupted by sin, before man had to work hard for food and deal with weeds and thorns and thistles, verse 7, here's the account of how God made man. So that helps you understand that five and six are not controversial to the Genesis account of God's creation of the plant life. All right, let's, let's jump in verse seven. Now, you're going to see, unlike all the living creatures, you have to remember back to last week, unlike all the living creatures which God simply spoke into existence, the creation of man was much more hands-on. God didn't just speak man into existence. Look at verse seven. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground, And he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. I want you to notice there's certainly no evolution here. There were no uh, pre-human ancestors, not even an ape. 
God didn't create some kind of animal and then watch man evolve from that. He didn't use evolution to, create, to, to bring man into being. It says here, God made man from the dust of the ground. Who created the dust of the ground? God did. So from the matter made by God, God made man. I want you to think about it for just a minute of how hands-on this describes the creation of man. It's astounding to think that the creator, whose power was so great that he could just speak things into being with his word, it's astounding to think that he would stoop down and get his hands dirty to form man. Does that say something about your value to our Lord? He is still, ever since day one, he is still painstakingly involved in the creation of life. Listen to Psalm 139, verses 13 and 14. As David testifies to the, the God who made him, he says, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. How many of you ladies in this room knit? Raise your hand real high so I can see you. If you knit, I don't see many. You probably don't have time. You ever watch somebody knit? That's a painstaking process, isn't it? Pearl one, drop two, I don't, what, what, how's that go? Somebody help me out. Pearl's in there somewhere, isn't it? Yeah, okay, thank you. I don't, I don't knit, I just have heard that said. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I think sometimes we have this concept that when God, when, 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 when a baby is formed, God just kind of calls up some warehouse in heaven and sends a torso and a head and arms and legs and all just thrown together. No, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. It's still not a random process. So much God thinks of you and of, and of me. Verse 7 says, he formed man, and then he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. We didn't see that with the animals. They have the breath of life, clearly, but it says God breathed into man's nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. All, all creatures, all living creatures have the breath of life. You'll see that when we get to chapter 7, when it says uh, that the flood uh, decimated or destroyed everything that had the breath of life in it. But only into man did God breathe the breath of life. What is he doing? He's breathing his image into man. Genesis 1.27, we are made in the image of God. All living creatures have a soul, but only man has a spirit that enables us to connect with the Spirit of God. That's how we have relationship with God. We don't know the location of Eden today. We just know that it was in the east. That's what the word tells us. It was a garden filled with lush plants, with beautiful stones, with minerals, with gold. Look at verse 9. Verse 9 tells us that the trees God planted in the garden were pleasant to sight and good for food. I don't know that the garden had everything, every plant 
that God made in the creation account. It was a very special place, and God put the best of the best there. And of course, you know the two trees that are uh, mentioned are the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And before we get to the the instruction regarding these trees, look quickly at verse 15. It says that God placed man, he took him and he gave him, put him in the Garden of Eden to do what? To work it and to keep it. Listen, God made man to work. That's in us, that's innate. It's, It's not part of the curse. God made man to work. Work existed before sin. Now, the work wasn't stressful. It was, it was fulfilling. And, and before the fall and before the curse, Adam, the keeper of the garden, wouldn't have to deal with weeds and thorns and thistles. The, the ground wasn't cursed, so plants would grow in perfect conditions. Work was what God made Adam, what God made man for. Now, look at verses 16 and 17. This kind of sets the stage for our study next week. The two trees mentioned in verse 9 were a test of man's submission and obedience to the Creator. Tree of life had the supernatural ability to sustain life. It was in the middle of the garden, it was in a prominent spot. But also, there was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Let me tell you, that tree was not toxic. That tree didn't have poisonous fruit. The tree, in and of itself, was not harmful. But eating from it would give man the knowledge of good and evil. At this point, Adam and then later Eve only knew good. And so God tells Adam not to eat of it, and he warns him. He tells him, if you you eat of it, you'll learn evil and you'll die. Now, honestly, shouldn't it be enough that God just said don't? But he even gave reason. I know a lot of times as a parent, I felt like me just saying don't do that should have been enough. God doesn't just say don't eat of it, but he gives reason. He says, look, this act of of disobedience, eating from this tree would be evil, and I'm going to judge disobedience, or I'm going to judge evil. And, And think about it. All the trees and plants that God had given them in the garden, there was only one restriction. Only this one tree. Adam had no reason to be disloyal to God. He had no reason to disobey. He had no reason to to doubt God's word or his love. He had no reason to resent the creator. Yet all those things came into play when temptation came. And they do for us as well. Well, let me summarize verses 18 through 20. Uh, In 18 through 20, it says that God brought the animals for Adam to name. You know, we all, I guess, think of different people we want to see when we get to heaven or different questions we have of God or some of the apostles or others. I got a question for Adam. Where in the world did Aardvark come from? <laughs> uh, how did you dream that up? He brought the animals for Adam to name. Now, one of the purposes for Adam to name the animals, as you read the text, was for Adam to see. God had already said it was not good for him to be alone. God wanted Adam to see that he was alone. It was not another one of his kind. God had made of all the kinds he had made, male and female, but Adam had no mate. There was nothing compatible. There was no counterpart for Adam. So look at verses 21 and 22 that tell us how God fashioned Adam's mate. 
So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. Hey, I want to ask you to raise your hands, but how many of you men ever counted to make sure you had all your ribs? <laughs> We're not short one, okay? Took one of his ribs, closed up the place with flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. So God took bone and flesh and blood from Adam and, and made, the word made there literally means to build. It's not, it's not a quick, easy process. It's, it's very hands-on, a very loving process. He took bone and flesh and blood from Adam, and he built this woman. And she was also made in the image of God. We go back to Genesis 126 and see that. Let us make man in our image, male and female, he made them. She's made in the image of God. She's not lesser. She's not intellectually, morally, or spiritually deficient. She, she is equal. Well, why was she created differently from man? This is not how God made man. The way he made, the way he made woman, Eve, was completely different. It's an illustration. Her role is to come under the leadership and protection and care of the man. What do your ribs do? Why do you have ribs? They protect. All those internal organs, they're there to, to protect. God created Eve from the rib of Adam to show that she's under his protection, his care, his leadership. Verse 20, there wasn't a helper fit for him. What does that mean? It means there wasn't a helper that was corresponding to him or, or worthy of him. God made woman to be worthy being a helper, a helper who was fit would enable Adam to fulfill the mandate God gave to fill and subdue the earth, to reproduce, to rule. Verse 23 then the man said, <clears throat> this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. At last, I haven't seen this before and all these other living creatures the Lord has brought before me. At last, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now, I don't know about your translation, but if you look, most translations, you see that verse 23 is, is set apart, typically by indention. The reason for that is the language here ha has changed. It's recognized as poetic language. Adam either wrote a poem or perhaps this was the first love song that's ever been written. He's so overwhelmed when God brings this woman to him that he launches into poetry. And men, there you have the reason. Every wife would love her husband to write a sonnet to her sweetness but you've got eight days. Verses 24 and 25, God institutes marriage. A man and a woman come together for life, not, not for a temporary time, not for a time, but they come together for life. A man and a woman who can create offspring, again, uh, obeying that Genesis 1:28. Uh, command to fulfill the earth and subdue it. A man and a woman who are designed to be one. Now, what I just read to you, looked at you there, looked with you at verse 24 and 25 is just more hate speech in our day. You understand that? 
last week in, in Genesis 127 where it says that God created him male and female. The fact that one kind can't change to another kind, that, that's hate speech in our day. And, and so is this. God intended for a male and a female to be united. Not a male and a male, not a female and a female. But for a male and a female to be united, that, that's hate speech. There are some who would try to convince you or trick you by saying, well, um, the New Testament doesn't say that. That was Old Testament. That was old law. The New Testament, it's all about love and grace. You know that in, in the book of Matthew in chapter 19, verses 4 through 6, Jesus affirmed these very two principles. He said that God made them male and female, and he said the man was to leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. He declared the same thing. Listen, if God's word is true, and it is, then we have the same choice Adam did. We can choose to obey and be blessed, or we can choose to disobey and be cursed. God's word is true. It's eternal, and it's unchanging, and we do not have the option of rewriting it. What does that mean for us as a church? Well, as a church, we stand on the truth, but we operate in love. Listen, Jesus didn't hate sinners, neither do we. But Jesus confronted sin. Why did he confront sin? Out of his love for sinners. He was calling them to repentance and calling them to life, calling them out of the curse and calling them into blessing. And that's what we do as well as the body of Christ. And it's incredible to read of God's account of creation and see the, the power and the and the, um, just the omniscience and omnipotence and sovereignty of God, and then to recognize his incredible love for us in how he created and how he intended life to be lived. And we don't want to miss that, and we don't want anyone we know to miss that as well.